congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. When you think about the things that you need, what comes to mind? Food, shelter, family, forgiveness. We could probably come up with quite a list. But would you put on that list the kingdom of God? When Christ taught us the Lord's Prayer, he introduced it with our needs in mind. He said, your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Now we can understand that we need daily bread, forgiveness, deliverance from evil. But in what way do we need his kingdom to come? What's so essential to the kingdom that Christ includes it in his model prayer? Now, he certainly doesn't intend it to be an empty request. He said that's how the Gentiles praised, prayed, keeping up empty requests. No, the request for God's kingdom to come is full. Full of meaning. Full of things that we ought to pray for. Full of things that we need. Now, Christ also taught us that God rewards humble prayers. Prayers that are prayed for his sake alone and not for the praise of anyone else. So if we ask God for his kingdom to come, how do we expect him to reward that prayer? What is this kingdom? Where do we find it? Where did it come from? Where is it going? With these questions in mind, I preach to you the meaning of the second petition as we confess it in Lord's Day 48. I'll do so with the following theme and points. Christ teaches us to seek the kingdom that rules the world. In the first place, the kingdom enters the world. In the second place, the kingdom overthrows the world. So the kingdom enters the world. Now the second petition, your kingdom come, is a new kind of prayer in scripture. The Old Testament contains many prayers, most notably the book of Psalms. But nowhere in all these prayers do we find the request for God's kingdom to come. Now, the idea of a kingdom dominates the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy already, while Israel was in the desert, Moses foretold that Israel would one day want a king. And later, God's people would reach the height of their earthly glory under the rule of the kings. And when that system led Israel into exile, then the prophets predicted a future king and a future kingdom. So there are many prayers throughout the Old Testament concerning the king and the kingdom. And these prayers, of course, refer to God and sometimes even call God the king. But this is always done with the kingdom of Israel in mind. Not a separate kingdom that was God's kingdom alone. In fact, the phrase kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven doesn't appear anywhere in the Old Testament. For the Israelites, any concept of kingdom was bound up with the kingdom of Israel and the land of Israel. But there's one place in the Old Testament that points ahead to a new kind of kingdom, one that isn't connected with the kingdom of Israel. In Daniel 2, King Nebuchadnezzar sees a future kingdom that will destroy all the others. And there's nothing in the vision to suggest that this future kingdom is a kingdom in Israel. But whatever this kingdom is, 
It's going to be greater than the greatest powers in the world, and it will never end. So at the time of Christ, there was certainly an idea among the Jews that a future kingdom was coming. And considering what the book of Daniel revealed about this kingdom, it would have been something that the Jews had fervently hoped for. So it's no surprise that the simple message of John the Baptist, for example, resonated with the Jews. Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. And Matthew 3 verse 5 tells us that in response to that simple message, Jerusalem and Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So John the Baptist gained huge crowds and many disciples just by preaching this future kingdom. Now John's command to repent shows us something about this kingdom. Not just anyone was fit for this kingdom. In fact, not just any Israelite was fit for this kingdom. John was preaching to Israelites, and he was commanding them to prepare for this kingdom. Being an Israelite itself wasn't enough. You had to prepare for this kingdom through repentance and through baptism. You confessed your sins, you were washed with water, and then you were ready for this kingdom. Now this already showed God's people that whatever this kingdom was going to be, it was going to be unique. Now when Christ began his ministry, He began it with the same message as John the Baptist. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But he filled out the picture in far more detail to demonstrate that this kingdom truly was like no other kingdom on earth. He taught that although the kingdom was at hand, that it was near, it wasn't going to be obvious to everyone. It was something that you had to seek. And you wouldn't find it by seeking it half-heartedly, You could only find it by seeking it at the expense of everything else. Now, Christ understood that we would spend our days trying to provide for our basic needs, that our lives would be governed by finding food to eat and clothes to wear, governed by practical things. But he commands us to seek, before all that, his kingdom. You prepare for this kingdom with repentance, and then you seek it, more seriously than you seek even what you need to live. Now Jesus compared the kingdom of heaven to a treasure that a man finds in a field and to a merchant who finds a great pearl. In both these stories, the men find something more valuable than anything else in their lives, and they make the logical choice to acquire that thing. Through these teachings, Christ was changing the expectations of his followers. They had expected him to sit on an earthly throne, to rule a kingdom that had political boundaries. It would be a kingdom with its own customs, a kingdom that you could find on a map. But Christ taught a different kingdom. You don't prepare for this kingdom by learning a different language and learning how to do things the way people do in another country. And you don't seek this kingdom on a map or by following any kind of road. You prepare for this kingdom by turning away from sin. And you seek this kingdom on your knees in prayer. 
But the temptation to establish an earthly kingdom is a strong temptation. Throughout history, people have been drawn toward mass movements and political systems that promised some sort of human utopia. Communism and fascism both taught that if you seek first the party or the state, then everything else would be added unto you. Even the church fell at times to the temptation that her security was to be found in human governments or that the kingdom of God could somehow be established in a political state. And those same temptations exist even in our own country. The temptation to believe that all of the wrongs we encounter in life can be fixed by better laws or more regulations. The temptation to believe that we can create some degree of perfection just by signing the right petitions and donating to the right causes. Now, that's not to speak against those things per se, but to speak against the human impulse to establish a human kingdom. Because the way that Christ spoke about the kingdom of God tells us something about people. What kind of people need to be told to repent? People who are imperfect. What kind of people need to be told to seek first the kingdom before they can find everything else? People who are unable to create their own security. The way that Christ speaks about the kingdom shows us that humans are broken creatures who ultimately can't take care of themselves. And if people are flawed like that, then we have to recognize that we will always live in a flawed world. We will never legislate evil out of the heart of man. And that's why we need something that's radically new. Something not governed by the worn-out laws of this world. Now, the Jews in Jesus' time had difficulty understanding this. They wanted a kingdom that was still tied to a particular place and a particular group of people. A kingdom that was of this world. But the truth is that the kingdom is not tied to any kind of place. It's tied to a person. And his kingdom is not of this world. That may not be what we naturally want, but it is what we need. Jesus said to Pilate that if his kingdom were like all the rest, then his disciples would be fighting. And it's also true that if his kingdom were like all the rest, then killing him would put an end to his kingdom. If you killed the king, you won his kingdom. But in Christ's case, it was the opposite. Killing the king ensured that the kingdom could never fall into enemy hands. And not just for the time being, but forever. This is the kind of kingdom that we really need. And this is the kind of kingdom that Jesus won for the world. This is the kind of kingdom worth seeking above all else. And this is the kind of kingdom worth spending a lifetime preparing for. A kingdom where those who are guilty can walk free through repentance. A kingdom that isn't miles away, but that is only one humble prayer away. And a kingdom whose security and prosperity isn't tied to the stock market or to natural resources or to a nuclear arsenal. It's a kingdom that is above all that. A kingdom tied to a human being who sits on the throne of Almighty God. And because this kingdom isn't subject 
to the laws of this world. It can fill this world without opposition. And this is our second point. When we pray the second petition, we pray for the kingdom to come. But if the kingdom came with Christ, why do we still have to pray for the kingdom to come? Well, we can look a little bit more at Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel 2. In his dream, the stone shatters the statue only one time. The establishing of this kingdom happens only once, and then it goes on forever. So when Christ came during the time of the feet of clay and iron and shattered the statue, his kingdom was established. His kingdom is here. It's already in the world. But the full effect of that kingdom hasn't yet come. Now the Catechism teaches that when we pray the second petition, we petition God to rule us by his word and spirit so that more and more we submit to him. So if you think about Daniel's vision and the kingdoms that were shattered, in those kingdoms, the kings would rule through fear and greed and cruelty. It was with armies and with intimidation that those kings governed. And that wasn't true of only the four kingdoms in the statue. That's true of all human kingdoms. Those kingdoms represented human power in general. And those kingdoms were shattered violently by a stone. Yet the kingdom of Christ didn't come about through violence. When he said to Pilate that his followers did not fight, he showed that it wasn't his intention to establish another human kingdom governed by human power. Nor did Christianity later spread through the Roman Empire through violence. No, the rock that shattered the statue in Daniel's vision represented a new kind of power in the world. And this new kind of power was entirely superior to the power represented by the statue. So how did Christ establish his kingdom? And how did that kingdom grow through the Roman Empire? It was through the power of God's word and God's spirit. And when we ask God to rule us by that word and that spirit, then we are asking God to rule us by that new kind of power the power that doesn't come from this world, the power that breaks the powers of this world. When we ask God for his kingdom to come, we recognize that that power is already here. That kingdom, that rock has come and it has shattered the statue. But what we're asking for is the fullness of Daniel's kingdom, the full effect of that kingdom. Daniel said that this kingdom would never be destroyed that it would stand forever. And this means that the kingdom of God is the only thing that a person can belong to that will never end. There's no company, no city, no country, no organization that can look into the future and know that it will exist forever except for the kingdom of God. So when you ask for God's kingdom to come, when you ask for the fullness of Daniel's vision, In the first place, you ask for that fullness in your own life. That you would see this new power of word and spirit grow. So that day by day it becomes more clear to you 
that this kingdom is the only thing worth seeking, that this kingdom really does shatter all the other powers in the world. And when we see that, then we see that submission to God is a joy. When we see the permanence of this kingdom, and we see that this permanent kingdom is governed by the wonderful fruits of the Spirit, then more and more submitting to God is a privilege and a pleasure. But when we pray for God's kingdom to come, we don't just pray that for our own lives. Because it certainly doesn't appear to the average person today that the kingdom of God has any sort of lasting power. The average person in our culture would probably say that the kingdom of God, whatever that means to them, is on its way out because Christianity is becoming irrelevant. So again, we're looking for the fullness of Daniel's vision, which means that you're asking for the power of that kingdom and the eternal nature of that kingdom to become apparent to everyone so that many people may see the fading nature of their own lives and seek first this kingdom. It's not only us who need this kingdom. The world very much needs the kingdom too. Now the catechism goes on to mention the works of the devil and every conspiracy that sets itself up against God's word. Since the Garden of Eden, there has been enmity between God's people and the devil. And the devil has always waged his war by means of the power of this world. Now when he tempted Jesus, he tempted Jesus by offering him the powers of this world. He tempted him by offering the unshattered statue as a prize. The devil didn't want a world that was no longer governed by war and greed and ambition. But even though Christ carried out his duty to the end and shattered the statue, the devil still didn't stop. The power that governs this new kingdom, the power of word and spirit, is beyond the control of the devil. But that doesn't mean he can't undermine how effective that power is. Now in our day, there are many authorities that try to set themselves up above God's word. Politicians, scientists, the media. They all conspire to set some human authority over God's authority. They teach you to trust human reason and human desires rather than to place your trust outside of yourself. Now, this is the devil's attempt to piece together that shattered statue, to have you ignore the new and eternal kingdom and keep your attention on the old, broken one. Now, you can see that these kingdoms are fully opposed to each other. On the one hand, the devil will do anything to keep you from paying attention to that broken statue or paying attention to the rock that broke the statue. And on the other hand, to seek God's kingdom is to seek it at the expense of everything else. The merchant gave up everything for the pearl. If he had kept back something for himself, he wouldn't have had enough to get the pearl. So we either completely ignore God's kingdom or we give everything to it. And we ought to remember what Christ said about the devil. He said to the Pharisees in John 8, You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. 
He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So when scripture speaks of the works of the devil, at root, those works are lies. They have no substance to them. There's no power in obeying them. When the devil distracts you from God's kingdom and tries to impress you with human authorities, he's lying. There's nothing there. You won't find the truth of your existence in a telescope. You won't find your security by voting for the right political party. And you certainly won't find freedom in the ways of life portrayed by the media. Now, the Apostle John writes in his first letter, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And John also records these words in his gospel. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. So to destroy the works of the devil and to bear witness to the truth are one and the same action. And that's the meaning behind God coming to the world in human flesh. It's the meaning behind the cross. Because if the devil used human kingdoms for his own ends, there was only one kingdom that he ruled over personally, and that was the kingdom of death. Death was the devil's great work, the price we paid for believing the devil's great lie. But Jesus shattered that kingdom too, the kingdom that every single human being has to live in. Jesus, who called himself the truth, paid the price of death without ever believing a single one of the devil's lies. For Christ, destroying the works of the devil and bearing witness to the truth were one and the same thing. So when you pray for the kingdom of God to come, you're praying for an increased witness to the truth. You're praying that the truth about the shattered power of this world would spread. You're praying that this truth would prompt everyone to leave everything behind and to seek first this new kingdom. Now the catechism concludes its explanation by pointing to the time when Christ will be all in all. Now people often wonder what the world is coming to, what the future of the human race is going to be. Well, Paul writes the following packed statement in Ephesians 1. He writes, God is making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So in Christ, we see God's plan for what Paul calls the fullness of time. Now, the fullness of time is more than just the end of time. It refers to the purpose of time. The reason why time keeps going, why we get older, why our children grow up. And if you want to know what the world is coming to, God has made his plan known in the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. And Paul says that that plan is a plan to unite all things in Christ. The eternal kingdom that Nebuchadnezzar sees doesn't just destroy. 
It doesn't just shatter the human powers and leave a mess. In this kingdom, everything is reoriented, not to bring glory to man, but to bring glory to the source of life and peace in Christ. So when we say that everything will be united in Christ, we say that everything will be given the life and the dignity that God intended for it. This is true of nature. It's true of our bodies, our souls, our relationships, our activities. God's plan for time is to unite all of these things with Christ so that they can all be enjoyed perfectly. Now this can happen because in Christ himself, we see the great unity. In his birth, we see the unity of God and man. In his death and resurrection, we see the unity of God's holiness and God's mercy. And in his ascension, we see the unity of heaven and earth. Our Father knows what we need before we ask it in prayer. He knows that we desperately need this kingdom to come. This kingdom that is only a prayer away, whose borders can be crossed only through repentance. This kingdom governed not by the king's armies, but by the king's word and the king's spirit. And this kingdom that overthrows the world and fills the future with glory. Our Father also rewards every prayer that is prayed in secret and that is prayed sincerely. And if we seek this kingdom in our prayer, our Father will reward us. Amen.